Well, hey, it's Zane Horowitz and everybody at the Oregon Poison Center for the April 18th, 2019 Journal Club. And today we're going to tackle the glyphosate debate. If uh, you've been looking at the news recently, uh, there are two major court cases and law and medicine don't always come to the same conclusions. Both handed out huge million dollar, multi-million dollar uh, jury awards to people who use glyphosate, and if you're wondering what that is, the main form of glyphosate available in the United States is in the product Roundup, which I'm pretty sure nearly everybody sometime or another had sprayed on the weeds um, around their homes if they had a home or on their sidewalks if they had weeds popping through the sidewalk. But I want to start out first and talk about what sometimes comes up with us in the Poison Center which is sometimes people just drink enough of this to get sick, and that does happen from time to time. And then we'll go into some of the science or controversies behind whether or not it does, in fact, with long-term exposure, increase the risk of certain types of cancer. So for the first article, I will talk about acute toxicity um, in a bizarre method by lethal ingestion. I thought it said injection there for a second. <laughs> lethal ingestion. Um, we have our uh, emergency medicine resident, Gallup. Hi there. So the first article is entitled Glyphosate Herbicide Formulation, a Potentially Lethal Ingestion, published in 2004 in Emergency Medicine Australasia. And they cover a few quick concepts that are worth reviewing. First, that Roundup is the most common herbicide used in the world now, and the main component is glyphosate. It has a carbon and phosphorus moiety, but despite some structural similarities, is not a cholinesterase inhibitor rather inhibits the shikimic acid pathway, whatever, mm -hmm. which is in plants, microorganisms, and involved in amino acid metabolism. So it's a pretty broad spectrum. And basically, you engineer GMO crops that um, are resistant to it and are not affected by it. And the idea is that it's a great weed killer. Um, there's not a lot of data on direct toxicity to animals uh, because we don't have the shikimic pathway. Um, the pharmacokinetics are not super clear. But it's not appreciably metabolized and excreted in the urine. Um, something just to note briefly is that Roundup's actually like at most 40-ish percent glyphosate, and there's a bunch of other compounds in there as well that are uh, not necessarily easy to learn about. So case one, there's a 37-year-old male um, who took an intentional overdose of about one liter of Roundup, as well as like 10 to 12 tablets of citalopram that are kind of just there in the background, but don't seem to do much here. Presented to the ED with um, complaints of vomiting, malaise, sore throat, and vital signs notable for respiratory rate of 30, heart rate 140, normal tensive at 120 over 80. His EKG, which you cannot see, sure looks like VTAC to me, <laughs> which is a little odd and is never really thoroughly explained. Um, and he also has labs notable for an acidosis of 7.25, 5-carb 13, potassium 8.2, which I think is bad, and then a glucose <laughs> at 30. He ends up being intubated for hypoxia. Gets anuric renal failure. Um, his symptoms are including hyperkalemia or refractory to bicarb insulin, calcium, hyperventilation. He ends up getting dialysis, vasopressors, but spirals into this mix of acidosis, hyperkalemia, hypotension, and dies. And this is fairly representative of what seems to happen to people when they take these large overdoses. The second case presented in this article is that of a 77 year old male who presented four hours after ingesting 500 milliliters of zero-weed killer, denying any co-ingestions, also having vomiting abdominal pain. At about five hours post-ingestion, he'd also develops hypotension, ends up having a heart rate, uh, excuse me, EKG notable for junctional bradycardia in his case, but also having a metabolic acidosis 7.19 and a hyperkalemia 7.4. 
he ends up getting pulmonary edema, a neurocranial failure, and then also despite dialysis, ventilation, um, and vasopressors, he dies. On his autopsy, they show mucosal sum ulcerations, small bowel infarction, unclear how much of that's due to the 5 say versus hypotension. <clears throat> so the article um, then mentions a couple key points in their discussion. First, there have been some registries of exposures to Roundup. Uh, there's one in Victoria from 98 to 2002 that had over 1,200 calls regarding glyphosate. In California, over 16 years, they documented over 800. Um, only 22 of the ones in California actually had systemic symptoms. Animal studies suggest that direct exposure to glyphosate is not that bad. Um, there are no known uh, deaths following accidental ingestion, though certainly if you try hard enough with those suicidal attempts, um, there are fatalities as high as potentially 16%. Um, why is it doing this? How is it doing this? Again, not super clear. There are suggests of it being maybe an oxfoss coupler, maybe having um, corrosive effects in your GI system. We know there's renal toxicity from what we discuss. Um, there's also a surfactant involved called POEA that may be causing pulmonary issues and hemolysis and might actually be driving some of the toxicity. Um, death ultimately appears to be via hypotension, renal failure, pulmonary edema. Um, and symptom onset can be 12 to 72 hours. Management, um, obviously decontamination, supportive care. There's some suggestions charcoal might be effective early on for POEA, the uh, surfactant component. Um, intubation, dialysis, pressors, not a lot of other information. Maybe endoscopy at some point to look for GI damage. And that is the summation of this paper. Yeah, I mean, it shows us at one end of the spectrum, if you take a lot of it, you get really sick uh, really fast. And in both these two cases, they presented die within 24 or 48 hours uh, with renal failure, hyperkalemia, and acidosis. So, and that EKG looks a lot like a tricyclic-looking EKG <laughs> with the wide QRSs and uh, even a little bit of an R-wave and lead to AVR. So maybe that's, that's a part of some cardiac toxicity that we yet, as yet, don't understand. But that's sort of the minority of the cases. I mean, uh, we probably get a lot of people who just are using this around a house or an industry and just get it sprayed on them and we have them wash it off. But before we get into the whole chronic use thing, I think we just talk a little bit about, obviously a journal we don't talk, read very much, but the history of this product and why it's really so important that it, it sort of emerged as the largest used herbicide um, in our country and probably many other countries. So, Adrian? Yeah, so this is um, a different article than I'm used to reading. Um, it was published in, what was it, Pest Management Science in 2017. <laughs> it's uh, titled The History and Current Status of Glyphosate. Um, so, as you said, Zane Glyphosate, most successful herbicide in history, and it was first commercialized in 1974. Um, it is more expensive than Paraquat, but it has several advantages. Um, unlike Paraquat, which is actually rapidly acting um, as a contact herbicide, glyphosate is slower acting and it kind of readily translocates into the, the area of the weed um, that's actually growing. Um, and so it has excellent systemic, uh, systemic properties and this allows the weed to be killed by application. Um, of only a very small percentage of the weed foliage. And so it is much more effective than paraquat in preventing root growth, and so it's more advantageous than killing like perennial weeds. Um, another thing too is obviously important to us, things like paraquat um, are very, very acutely toxic. 
um, probably the most acutely toxic herbicides to vertebrates. And so um, compared to that, glyphosate has been shown at, as well as its degradation product to be uh, have pretty low acute and chronic toxicity um, compared to this. So glyphosate is a superior herbicide, but uh, glyphosate's high level of phyto phytotoxicity limits um, its use in crops. And so, so phyto phytotoxicity is essentially like it in grain or salt in the actual plant. Um, and so making crops actually resistant to glyphosate solves that problem. Uh, and the first uh, glyphosate resistant crop was um, a soybean, and this was in 1996. Um, and after that, it started a weed management revolution, he says. <laughs> and so after that, the adoption rates for other crops um, has been um, high. Um, and it's been really great for farmers because it's really simplified and reduced the cost of weed management, um, giving better results than um, multiple herbicides previously needed. Um, this technology, it has reduced the environmental impact of weed management through reductions in tillage, um, fuel use, and obviously we don't have to use the more toxic herbicides. And as you said again, I love this, it was the golden age of weed management. <laughs> So um, in the U.S., the use of glyphosate climbed rapidly after the introduction of these glyphosate-resistant crops, and um, at the same time, because of this, uh, the use of other herbicides um, plummeted. And the success for the um, glyphosate-resistant crops significantly devalued the market for other herbicides, and so that led to reductions in investment and actually other herbicide discovery. And so it was at that time that introduction of new herbicide modes of action really hit speed. Um, as far, okay, so, so kind of the big problem now, what's happened um, since that golden age is that um, glyphosate um, and glyphosate resistant crops, um, there's been this evolution of resistance um, to glyphosate in weeds. And as a result of the massive selection pressure created by the constant widespread use, as of mid-2017, there are about 37 weed species that have been reported to evolve resistance to glyphosate. Um, and much of the increase in glyphosate-resistant weeds has been in, unfortunately, glyphosate-resistant crops, where farmers have almost exclusively been using glyphosate just year after year after year. Um, so some of the glyphosate-resistant weeds have caused um, pretty severe problems for the farmers as far as um, their management of efficacy, uh, significantly increasing the cost of weed management for them. Um, and then they've also had to kind of reinstitute certain techniques as far as tillage um, in order to actually control the weeds. Um, despite all of this, um, being more of a costly issue, um, farmers are still using glyphosate and glyphosate-resistant crops um, because the majority of these species in these crops are still susceptible. Um, and so it's still considered kind of the uh, herbicide of choice for most weeds. Um, and it sounds like the adoption rate continues to be above 90% for cotton, corn, and soybeans in the U.S. Um, even after these glyphosate-resistant weeds became a big problem. So kind of in conclusion, kind of in the short term, glyphosate will continue to be the most used herbicide, but um, obviously the increase in all these uh, resistant weed species are, is obviously going to cause an issue, and probably in the future there's going to be a reduced use of glyphosate. 
Yeah, so the question even before we get into does glyphosate cause health problems is what are we ever going to do if we have to actually stop using it and replace it? It replaced these far more toxic herbicides like Paraquat and Diquat plus so toxic but still pretty uh, has high human health hazards associated with them. And to the point where soybeans and a bunch of other crops, literally you can't grow these without putting this down. So as much as we think of the image of the kind of suburban person spraying Roundup around his yard so the flowers grow better, this is used gigantic amounts throughout agribusiness in the United States and elsewhere. And we've developed nothing that works to replace it should we find that this product is indeed a health hazard. Um, and it's probably in some of those foodstuffs. I, there's some other papers I looked at, but basically looked at people who eat a lot of like corn and things like that. And yes, they have trace amounts and what that means, I don't know, and no one knows yet. Um, so it's out there, it's in our diets, the way other things that have percolated down through the uh, food chain or up through the food chain exist. So now to try to answer uh, the burning question that the juries probably had to face was, does glyphosate use, is it associated with cancer? Because I don't think we can prove it causes cancer. But is there an association statistically with it? So take it away, Lauren. Great. Thank you. Um, so my article is now turning this towards effects on humans, and it's Glyphosate use in cancer incidence in the agricultural health study, and this is a NIH-funded um, study among some other government groups with some pretty substantial high-volume um, evidence, which is pretty cool. So they start out by just giving us a little bit of background on uh, what glyphosate is, which we've already gone over. My favorite part is just the uh, enzyme that it inhibits. Mostly looks like somebody just kind of hit their keyboard with their hand and then whatever word that was like the name of the compound. It's 5-enolpyruval shikimate, but it looks just like it's too many V's and Y's for me. Um, but we discussed how that's only present in plants. In 1993, they discussed how the U.S. EPA determined that there's no unreasonable risks or adverse effects to humans and so that it could still be used. But then there are these... Um, cases here and there suggesting that it does have some toxic effects in animals and humans, even though we don't have this enzyme. Um, and so in 2015, they mentioned how the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the IARC, uh, they have a work group that was citing, they said, sufficient evidence for the uh, carcinogenicity of glyphosate in experimental animals and that it could be genotoxic in animals and then it also induces oxidative stress and the problem is we just don't have enough information and so uh, what happens next is the agricultural health study was started um, and they did their first evaluation from 1993 to 1997 and essentially took a cohort of um, people who are working specifically with glyphosate, so they're agricultural workers, and they prospectively followed them using a, using a survey. And what this study did is add 11 years onto that initial data. So we're already taking this data that had tens of thousands of people and adding another tens of thousands of people to that. And then what they looked specifically at, and I'll go into a couple more details, um, they were looking at incident cancer diagnoses specifically. So they're just trying to link, is glyphosate linked to increased rates of cancer? Um, and it was, I thought, very well organized. It was strong because it was prospective. Their N was 44,932 reports uh, of different of, of participants. Um, and that was after 
excluding some people. So anyone who already had cancer was excluded. And then they essentially put out this kind of detailed survey where people had to put in exactly uh, how many days per year and how many years they were working with glyphosate. And because they're, I guess, in this occupation where it uh, these pesticides and things are and herbicides are controlled. They said they're actually pretty reliable reporters because this is their job and it has to be regulated. And then furthermore, the people they kind of got they use this um, term called intensity weighted lifetime days of exposure. And essentially, what they did is they took their like essentially it's like a pack per year, but for glyphosate. So it's the days per year times number of years, and then this intensity score that they made based on how the person was interacting with the compound. Um, and that also included like their use of PPE, whether the person was mixing and applying the pesticides or just repairing the equipment that was exposed to the pesticides and the methods that they use. So it's just kind of taking in like the intensity of the exposure. And then they, um, used a Poisson regression to calculate the incidence rate. Um, and then they divided up categories of this uh, lifetime days of glyphosate exposure and also linked it with intensity. And then what was really nice is they controlled it for cigarette smoking. They also controlled for uh, drinking alcohol, um, family history of cancer, the state of recruitment. So this was exclusively done in North Carolina and Iowa. And they also controlled for the five other pesticides that are most highly correlated with using glyphosate. So they were controlling for other pesticides, which I thought made it extra strong um, to just get this data. And then they uh, also evaluated lag interval between their exposure and later cancer as well, even if they hadn't like had continuous exposure. So essentially they got this really great data. Um, it's worth mentioning and um, a couple of limitations that their uh, population was almost entirely white males. So of course we can only apply this data to that um, population. And then uh, essentially they have a, several tables outlining like all their different risk ratios, but essentially they found no associated increased total cancer rates. And the initial concern from other um, studies was that there could be an uh, increased incidence in multiple myeloma or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they did find a slight increase in the frequency of uh, AML, which was not previously reported, but it was non-significant, but the study still acknowledged that there was that slight increase, but everything else was exactly the same as the background incidence in the population of cancers. And they also listed, they looked at cancers because they had over, by doing, adding these years onto this, they added an, an additional like 7,000, um, I'm sorry, an additional 5,000 cases onto the original 1,000 cases of cancer. So they use those cancers and they, any cancer that had more than 12, uh, 20 like uh, cases. So like 20 cases of lung cancer, you had to have at least 20 cases in that cancer type to be included. Essentially, they just found that there was no increased incidence and they very appropriately stated their conclusions. Like we have found some evidence of a possible association between glyphosate and AML and it's consistent across their different metrics that they use to measure this, but there was no other increase in cancer incidence. Yeah, so this, I mean, this was sort of the study. They, it was well-designed, it was prospective, it didn't uh, depend on patients or farmers recalling whether or not they had used something. They enrolled them years ago and they've been following them now for close to 20 years. And you know, like I said, they keep accurate records that when they apply something every season, they have to buy things, they have receipts, they have applications, and so they know what they're using and what they're not using. And it, it 
some of these other things that they controlled for uh, as well. And interestingly, the, the one that was in the court case was, I believe, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in the most recent one, and that was one they didn't find any statistical association with. I think the biggest thing that made things complicated for the jury, and I wasn't in the jury room, I had followed the, what was said, was that it, it was declared an IR, international uh, organization, cancer risk based on somewhat limited data. But once a big organization like that declares something, then it seems to permeate everyone's opinion of what happened. I don't know what weighed more for them and what experts said more for one or for less, but based on a non-industry sponsored prospective study, it really doesn't seem like there's an increased incidence in any specific cancer or cancer overall. Um, so the next part of the equation um, is, well, does it do other health effects? Because, you know, cancer is one thing. What about non-health effects? And unfortunately, a similar kind of study does not exist that I could find outside of industry sponsors. So now maybe to give them equal opportunity to put their uh, voice into our discussion, there is an industry-sponsored uh, review of non-cancer-related outcomes. So, Matt. Thank you. This was an, a meta-analysis published in Regulatory Toxicology and Pharmacology in 2011, and it was an epidemiologic study of glyphosate and non-cancer health outcomes over about a decade and a half period. The study, or meta-analysis that is, attempted to evaluate whether glyphosate affects the incidence of diseases over a whole slew of conditions, including diabetes, heart attacks, Parkinson's disease, respiratory illnesses, um, fetal anomalies, rate of conception, among others, and conducted this across by looking at over a dozen different studies, including cohort studies, case control studies, as well as cross-sectional analysis. To provide a little bit of background about these different types of studies, essentially most data was obtained through the Agricultural Health Survey that Loren discussed previously, which was a prospective database that was obtained starting in 1993 and through the initial phase of 1997. Over interim periods, there were additional uh, surveys that were sent out to these farmers who were involved to evaluate the um, effects of their, their use and any new reports that they had. These various studies um, retrospectively looked at these databases as well as the interim updates to assess the, the changes in incidence of various diseases. Cohort studies, which look retrospectively, include diabetes, heart attacks, and Parkinson's disease. And uh, most of them use a dichotomous evaluation of whether patients ever or never mix the high substances and whether they have and their total cumulative exposure. So in a lot of cases, the exposure to glyphosate wasn't necessarily a total exposure over a total period of time, it's whether they used it at all. And unfortunately, when evaluating health outcomes from different exposures, a lot of times it, the dose response curve takes more than one exposure to re result in a specific disease outcome. Similarly, in the case control studies, a lot of the, a lot of the controlled patients didn't necessarily have, have uh, not, were, were from a similar group of patients who were exposed, but due to the variability in farming practices, it doesn't necessarily mean that they did not have any exposure to glyphosate at all. So it's truly difficult to differentiate if these non-exposed people who were categorized or who were 
associated with those who were exposed truly did not have any exposure over the period of time. Over, while comparing all these different studies, the authors concluded that overall there is no significant association of glyphosate use with specific outcomes across nearly every single category analyzed. There were a handful of instances where there were significant outcomes from the data analysis, including possible increase of ADHD risk and possible increased rate of rhinitis. However, both these groups of patients were evaluated in cross-sectional analyses which do not show causation. Further, most of these outcomes also were self-reported outcomes, and it is difficult to truly, truly evaluate uh, from reports decade over a decade ago whether your symptoms were not due to a cold or some other pathology, or whether your, your family member's ADHD was not related to the glyphosate as no medical professional actually made a diagnosis of these cases later on. So overall, there's no hard evidence that shows that glyphosate does cause health outcomes later on. However, it's important to note that a lot of these studies are heavily limited by bias. Not only is there a heavy selection bias in the data that was analyzed by each of these individual studies, as pretty much all patients enrolled in the agricultural health study were from Iowa and North Carolina, but there were further other limitations, including uh, of recall bias, as a lot of these patients who were involved had to remember over a de or years or decades later about previous exposures. And it is possible that patients who were in the non-exposed groups and not using glyphosate don't have the same level of recall as those who are, say, pesticide applicators who have much more detailed application records. Um, overall, there, it, this leaves a lot of room for further studies about whether there truly is any associated risk. However, this will require much more detailed, controlled studies moving forward to evaluate these health outcomes, which may be very well difficult given the pesticide exposure of farmers apply multiple different pesticides. And it's truly hard to isolate patients and people who are exposed versus not exposed and tracking them for numbers of years, which poses a, a greater challenge. But at this point, it doesn't appear that glyphosate is associated with adverse health outcomes, even for long-term use. Yeah, so um, as best as we can do it, and again, this is, we'll state that was a, a research paper supported by the Monsanto company, which makes Roundup specifically, and they acknowledge that, which they should. Um, and, um, so the others have to take that in there. Could they interpret things a little bit slightly off? Um, but you're right, a lot of these were not as quality studies as the let's enroll people and follow them for 20 years and keep accurate records. And it's hard to say amongst farmers, you know, for instance, rhinitis is that due to the fact that they're farmers and they work outdoors and there's a lot of plants outdoors and you're more likely to have allergies or is that something to do with the chemicals that they're using? Um, I guess sort of the good news is it doesn't cause heart attacks and diabetes and Parkinson's disease and neurodegeneration and some of these other things. We've been associated with other products used in the animal business. So I guess we're on somewhat safer ground, but again, need to be taken with the huge grain of salt. This was an industry supported written article rather than a de novo research done by independent people like National Institute of Health or someone else like the study that uh, Loren just told us about. 
So why don't we tie it up a little bit as best we can, and we'll have maybe a little bit of discussion about some of the facts and fallacies in the debate on glyphosate, uh, Tony. Yeah, I've uh, got this paper called Facts and Fallacies in the Debate on Glyphosate Toxicity. This was um, published in 2017 in Frontiers in Public Health. Um, this is not sponsored by uh, Big Roundup. <laughs> um, but uh, what they essentially do is go, it's sort of a review of commentaries. So um, there are five commentaries by these two authors um, that they essentially, the authors' names are Samsel and Senef. Uh, they wrote five commentaries about glyphosate, and uh, this article essentially goes through all five commentaries in detail and sort of picks out um, either logical fallacies or, um, or flaws in sort of what they're saying and how they're using their references and so forth. So um, they start out by, uh, by uh, giving us this, uh, what I thought was a pretty great quote here. It says, it doesn't matter how beautiful your theory is. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't, if it doesn't agree with the experiment, it's wrong. This is a quote by uh, Richard Feynman, who was a Nobel laureate in physics in 1965. So they start with that. Um, background on uh, glyphosate has, I think, been done pretty well by most people. Um, and essentially, it comes down to, like, this is pretty ubiquitously used. We are all exposed to it. If you test us for glyphosate, we will all have some amount of glyphosate. Um, a lot of the, like, toxic, um, a lot of the data for toxicity comes from acute one-time, like, huge exposures. Uh, and there's not a lot of data about, um, about the, about toxicity in humans at the level that we are typically exposed to over time. Uh, then a lot of the publications are, um, either sort of try and tackle the issue from an ideal, ideological standpoint. So you go in already believing that this is bad or good or are uh, sponsored, like this last study that we looked at, sponsored by industry, which obviously has to be taken with a grain of salt. So um, that's sort of their introduction to what they're about to do. And so the first um, article, the first commentary written by uh, Samsel and Senef um, are about gly glyphosate inhibition of cytochrome P450 enzymes, uh, and can this lead to uh, chronic illness? So. Um, there is some evidence that at high concentrations, at like very high concentrations, like concentrated levels of glyphosate, not what we're exposed to, that CYP450 uh, enzymes can be inhibited. Obviously, these are uh, enzymes that are, that are highly used in detoxification of a number of xenobiotics and intrinsic biotics, really. Um, they... Uh, this theory has led to the idea that like downstream this could cause some issues because you're not detoxifying the things that you should detoxify. Um, and so that was essentially the subject matter of this first commentary. Um, the first issue with this is that um, we actually don't know whether it's glyphosate itself or uh, a number of other chemicals that are mixed in with glyphosate that are, that are the inhibitor. I don't think functionally this makes a difference to me because if the product is being used and it's, you know, then it's, it could potentially still be harmful. So that's less of an issue for me, although it does need to be taken into account when we're saying glyphosate is, is harmful. Um, it may actually be something else that is inhibiting the CYP450 enzymes. Um, the 
the bigger issue is that when they go through um, themselves and looked over the lit review, they essentially found that glyphosate and round round uh, the glyphosate probably increases the activity of CIP450. So exactly the opposite of what Samsel and Senef said. So um, at the very least, there is some question as to whether CIP450 is um, inhibited or um, increased in its activity when we're exposed to glyphosate. Um, and then there, there for sure is no data about what that does downstream. There's only sort of speculation. So a lot of issues with that argument. Uh, the second thing that they talk about uh, is the second commentary by these same two people, and that's about whether glyphosate is linked with a rise in non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So if you have been paying attention to anything over the past five years, you have noted probably more and more things, whether they need to be or not, marked as gluten-free. Um, so, you know, obviously celiac disease we know to be a real thing. Uh, Non-celiac gluten sensitivity is also this other phenomenon that people are experiencing. Um, and so there is some thought that maybe um, our, our exposure to glyphosate over time could be involved in this. Um, and essentially what they, what they came to the conclusion uh, of in this, after reading through their, the, the commentary on this was like, there's not a causative link. We don't know whether this is causative. Um, we do know there are more cases of this non-celiac gluten sensitivity being diagnosed. We don't know why, um, you know, maybe it has to do with gut microbiome, um, issues, um, and the fact that glyphosate may potentially, in some people's uh, hypotheses, affect your gut microbiome. Um, but there's, again, there's not a causative link, and so we don't know. We certainly need to be investigating this more, but right now it's not clear. Um, then they talk about whether glyphosate uh, chelation of manganese is a cause of chronic illness. So. Um, the idea here is that glyphosate was actually originally patented as a divalent cation metal chelator, which is interesting. Um, so it, it chelates manganese quite easily. And low manganese has been linked to osteoporosis, prion diseases, like the death of coral reefs, um, and like a number of other horrible things that are going on around the world. So the thought here is that, okay, you've got a glyphosate chelator, you've got these things that result from decreased manganese in, in, um, in people and coral and, and whatever. Uh, so this may, this may be the cause. Um, another example of this is like, you know, what they, what they talk about is like prion, so prion misfolding, right? So it's thought that, um, that prions misfold because um, manganese actually interferes with, with the prion folding. Um, and so that's one of the things they say, like, oh, it messes with your manganese, so it must have something to do with prions. But if you really think about it, the way they explain it, they basically say, like, if you're sequestering manganese, how does manganese interfere with prion folding? So the, the pathophysiology doesn't even make sense in the entire argument. Uh, because you're sequestering manganese, so it shouldn't be available to interfere with, with, um, with prion misfolding. So there's a huge logical fallacy there. Um, then they go on to talk about, um, you know, they, they, Samsel and Senef in their commentary on this, the manganese uh, chelation, referenced 328 studies um, in their commentary but only one of those studies actually looked at manganese, um, the, like manganese levels in animals. 
Uh, and this was a study that was done in dairy cows, and they essentially were looking at kidney dysfunction in these cows and trying to correlate it with manganese levels, and what they found was the manganese levels didn't even correlate with, um, with uh, the kidney dysfunction or urinary glyphosate levels. And so there's one animal study in the entire commentary that's referenced, and, um, and apparently only one of them is in, is in animals. So again, they're probably taking a few extra steps that, they, that are not evidence-based. Um, the fourth thing that they address is, is glyphosate responsible for a steep rise in certain cancers? Um, and, and the idea here is that, okay, we've, see, we've been seeing like a lot of increase in diagnosis of a number of different cancers, which I won't go over, and over that same time, we've been seeing an increase in glyphosate use. So clearly these two things must be correlated, of course. There's no other possible explanation, and that was essentially what the commentary talked about. So their point with this is, um, I think it comes down to something pretty simple that we, and, and they talk about how, what Zane was talking about, how it's like, it's, you know, it's an IR classify, it's like probable carcinogen, but it really comes down to one sort of simple thing that we know about cancer, and that is there needs to be a time period between exposure and uh, expression of some sort of mu mutation. Um, so like you don't get exposed to something and then immediately get cancer, that's just not, it's not consistent with what we know about cancer. Even people who got exposed to high doses of radiation uh, through various events had a time period between the time that they were exposed, usually multiple years, and the time that they ended up with cancer. And so um, they didn't show a graph of like cancer versus glyphosate, but what they essentially say is that they like pretty much increase and accelerate in their, uh, the, the use of glyphosate and the incidence of certain cancers increase at exactly the same time which doesn't make any sense. There should be a delay between increasing glyphosate use and then increasing diagnosis of cancer. 66% uh, of glyphosate, because uh, the, the review talks about how all this glyphosate was used between 1974 and 2014, uh, but it turns out that 66% of the glyphosate, glyphosate that they were talking about was used after 2004. Uh, so there really wasn't time for a lot of these cancers to show up. Their point is if it had been used like you know, many years ago, and now we're seeing cancer, that's a reasonable thing to, to, to reach for. But right now, if they're increasing at the same rate, it doesn't really make sense, which I thought was a really good point. All right, so uh, lastly, can glyphosate substitute for glycine in polypeptide chains? So the hypothesis here is that glyphosate is a glycine analog and is incorporating itself into, into these polypeptide chains in something called peptoids, which is a new word for me, but... Um, it's essentially uh, the same protein with glycine substituted for glyphosate. Um, so the idea here is that you're making all these dysfunctional proteins, all these misfolded proteins, and they're not functioning right, and then it's leading to illness downstream. Um, and w one of their, I think, strongest points about this is just like, a lot of this is just like, let's just step back and think about this. Because, yeah, it's certainly possible that glyphosate is incorporating itself into glycine. They look very similar in the structures. Sorry, listeners, you can't see these. But the structures are, are um, on page two if you have the, um, the article pulled up. Glyphosate looks a lot like glycine. Um, and you could totally see how this could be incorporated. And it may be that it is being incorporated. But let's step back and think about cellular machinery. First of all, it's evolved over millions and billions of years to incorporate glycine into proteins. So incorporation of glyphosate into proteins is probably super inefficient. 
And what happens afterward is we've got backup mechanisms to destroy proteins that are uh, misfolded. So even if glyphosate did make it into proteins in a very, what's probably a very efficient process, the protein itself misfolds and there's cellular machinery that is, uh, that has evolved to like polyubiquinate and destroy, like tag these proteins for destruction. So one, it's probably inefficiently incorporated. Two, there's machinery as a backup um, to keep it from um, to going out into the world. Uh, lastly, they talk about there's really no, like all of these peptoids that have glyphosate in them have been lab produced. Um, there's been like a couple of in vitro studies for E. coli and they are not able to incorporate glyphosate. And yes, their E. coli and their cellular machinery is different than ours, but that at least says something about, hey, this like very common lab organism that we use is not able to actually incorporate this. Um, so overall, I felt like um, this was an interesting article. I think, you know, obviously what they were looking at was fairly limited because they seem to be very focused on Samsel and Senef. I don't know if they're arch nemeses or what it is that they, they, but they decided to pick on all of their commentaries. Um, I thought they did a good job going through what, um, what these guys were saying and sort of looking at different logical fallacies. Um, and yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I mean, it goes way, way deep into some of the pathophysiology, and, and obviously all, not all the pathophysiology translates into what we accept in, in medicine, for instance, even if manganese led to protein misfolding, I mean, you still need the prion to cause prion-associated disease, so it's still not a complete, if you're exposed to one, then the other thing's going to happen. Um, you know, they, they sort of briefly address and shrug off the whole cancer thing, which we covered with the other study. Um, but, you know, the, the premise is, yeah, unfortunately, you need a lag, you need an entire generation of farmers using this product to find out, do they have an increased cancer? And at least with at least 20 years of data so far, we don't have this. Despite that, IARC has moved forward and caused, as a relatively cancer-causing agent. So I think... The lay people juries who hear these arguments back and forth and are probably as uh, confused by the data as maybe all of us sitting around the table here today might be, it's going to be hard to come to a, a clear-cut conclusion on what it does and doesn't do. Um, for us, for our uh, poison center world, because we don't usually get asked about cancer-causing things, although we do have some risk communication role. You know, for the people who drink this acutely, we worry this is a bad thing. I would drop an NG tube and empty their stomach and maybe give them charcoal and put them in an ICU and treat them aggressively. Um, we probably don't see much of that. We see more of the kid who takes a sip and the, uh, the weekend gardener gets sprayed on by this. And for most of those, it's wash their mouths out or wash their sleeves or arms or legs or face off and get it out of their eyes. And all those people do not need to be sent in for healthcare evaluation. For the people who call up in the wake of these news things and say, hey, I've been spraying uh, Roundup in my garden every year for the last X number of years, what should I do? Um, we, it's the same thing we risk communicate with everybody who worries about cancer, no matter what they work with in the world, is see a doctor, get a complete evaluation, and continue to monitor it. But at this point, the science does not have a causation between Roundup glyphosate, specifically the chemical, or the other ingredients in the uh, product being linked to causing cancer, increasing the risk of cancer based on studies. Does that mean it's never, ever going to happen? Does that mean you're never, ever going to get cancer? No, of course not. You, uh, you have to have your health monitored. Do you want to use gloves? 
or goggles when you spray this stuff every year? Sure, that's always common sense. We're not going to argue against common sense. So uh, anyway, there are literally hundreds of articles on this that we could have gone into. I wanted to pick a smattering of them from our perspective. Um, I'm sure we will get calls, and I just wanted everyone to be able to ha you know, handle the information that we need to disseminate and sort of sum that up there um, in the end. So till next time, uh, be careful in your garden, and Zane Horowitz and the uh, crew at the Oregon Poison Center uh, with our journal club. Thanks.